Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Artemis Joukowsky, who is a filmmaker, a publisher. Can we call it a publisher? We'll get into that. Uh, disability employment advocate and aspiring Paralympian at 60 years old in the sport of table tennis. Artemis, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Honor and pleasure. This is, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Obviously, we've known each other for a long time. And, and it's really interesting for me to have done some research on you and to see that, you know, it's interesting to, to look at the, the disability employment part of it mm-hmm. and say, okay, this is a big part, but you've approached this thing from so many different angles. I mean, from 14 years old, right, is when, you, when you're diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy. And, and I hadn't realized that there were three, that there were four different types of spinal muscular atrophy. So you have the, the type three, I guess, is what it, what, what happened there? What is spinal muscular atrophy? Well, spinal muscular atrophy is a um, genetic disease. It's an autosomal recessive, meaning uh, both parents have to have a deletion uh, on their fifth chromosome. And it's a deletion of a protein that doesn't get expressed properly. And most people who, who have the more severe form die before they're two years old uh, because the same nerves that this protein uh, enables are the nerves that generate breathing in our, in our lungs. And so most children who get this disease uh, don't, don't live very long. I have fortunately a very mild form of the disease and over my life, I've been able to compensate uh, for my weakness, for the deletion of this protein that causes atrophy. That's why it's called spinal muscular atrophy, SMA. And um, really, it's been all about my activism, my, my, my commitment to my health, uh, my, my desire to participate fully in the world. Um, and being an athlete before my disease really hit hard, um, I learned the, the fun of being part of a team, being part of a, an effort to, to get good at something. And, um, I never stopped wanting to live with all my heart. You know, I, I, even though I had this incurable disease that many people died of, I felt like I was going to make the best of what I had. It sounds like there were some dark moments, though. I mean, which makes sense as a 14-year-old, right? And that, you know, wasn't your grandmother uh, a, a big influence? And how did that come about? Yes. Yeah, so I um, uh, was given an assignment by my ninth grade uh, history teacher to interview someone of moral courage. And I went and, and, and went home and I said, Mom, what is moral courage and who should I interview and she said, well, go talk to your grandmother. She did some interesting things during World War II. And little did I know, my grandmother rescued hundreds and hundreds of people from the Holocaust. She defied the, the Gestapo, went with her husband to both Prague and Southern France, 
And in hearing the story, I was totally changed. At that same time, I was starting to fall down. I was starting to struggle with my body and was diagnosed with my disease. And she could tell I was having a hard time. And she came to my hospital room and she said, don't feel sorry for yourself. Let's help others. And with her, I began to organize a support group for my disease. And I started to see the power of giving back to others and seeing how lucky I was. And I was just 14. It was a, it was a tough time. I felt sorry for myself. And, and I felt like my life was over and I was no longer the best shortstop. And I was no longer able to do the things physically I love doing. And it was her encouragement to, to never give up, to give back to others, uh, and to not be focused on my own pity, my own self-pity. The thing is, at 14 years old, most of us didn't have any clue about helping anybody else at 14 years old. That wasn't high on the priority list, was it? No, it, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, I felt, I think, so excited to help others because I knew that I was struggling um, in somehow in the vulnerability of being uh, in this position of, of, of having a, a disease that could kill me. Um, I decided to just kind of turn the corner and put my heart and soul into the lives of other people. And really the thing that really changed was tutoring kids at the Boys and Girls Club, uh, seeing, seeing underserved kids, uh, not have as much opportunities I had in my in my life, and feeling like I could give them something that that they didn't have in the way that they were giving me something that I didn't have, and um, that was the life changing moment of my life. It was really my grandmother who 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 pulled me out of my self pity and said, "Come on, let's go help others." How much of, of her experience in World War II, her and your grandfather's experience in World War II, did she share in that conversation? She, she told me everything. She told me, you know, uh, the most exciting stories of rescuing people. Uh, I never really understood the perils of the Holocaust until that time. And um, she told me what it took for her uh, to, to, to leave my mother who was two years old and my uncle who was seven years old in the care of other people and go to Europe during this time. And I, I really had no idea the extent of what courage was until I heard her story. And then I realized, oh my God, this is a woman that I wanna emulate. This is a person that I wanna be inspired by. And uh, it was, it was. And how did that come about? Because wasn't your, your grandfather was a Unitarian minister? Right. They were Unitarians from Wellesley. Okay. And the, Wellesley, the, Mass. Yeah. Wellesley, Massachusetts. And at that time, there was a church in Prague. And the church in Prague wrote to the Unitarians in Boston and said, don't send us money, send us Americans. And so the Unitarians then went to their congregations and invited a minister and their partner to go to Europe. Uh, this is 1939 to help the sister church in Prague. And my grandparents were the 18th choice. 17 other people said no to my grandparents, to, to, to the congregation. And my grandparents said, yes, they were the 18th to say they'll do it. 
And so they quickly arranged for my mother to be cared for and my uncle to be cared for in Wellesley uh, at a school called the Dana Hall School. Um, and they, um, the Dana Hall School took in my mother and my uncle and cared for them. So my grandparents could leave them and go to Europe uh, and help what they had no idea what was happening. I mean, they arrived in Prague and as they get off the train, they're seeing thousands and thousands of refugees trying to get onto the trains to get out of Prague. Um, and they could tell that this was a nation in crisis. This was a, a, a period of incredible upheaval. And, you know, in those days we didn't have um, the same kind of news uh, that we have today. Uh, so no one really had any clue that it was as bad as it was. But the moment they, they arrived in Prague, and this is February 1939, they started to help people get out because they could tell that people's lives were in danger and they wanted to help as many people as they could. They ended up saving over a thousand people um, during a nine month period in Prague. And then when they were, uh, when a warrant was put for their arrest, they quickly got on a train and got on a boat and came back to the US and arrived in, uh, in, 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 in the fall of 1939. Um, and then, and then uh, later in June of the next year, France was invaded by, by, by Hitler and all the people they had helped to rescue had then escaped to France. And now France was under siege. And so the Unitarians said, can you go back again? And so then they went back a second time. Now knowing the perils of, uh, of, of what the, the Nazis were trying to do um, and their work became more difficult but more important in, in many ways because they were trying to get people from Marseille in the southern part of France over the Pyrenees into, into Spain and then on boats out of uh, Lisbon to the U.S. to southern uh, South America anywhere they could get people they got people out and there they rescued at the end, the last trip was 25 children uh, that were, um, um, were basically threatened to be orphaned. Um, and um, not only did they get those 25 children out, but they were able to get all the parents out on the next period of time. So it really was a miraculous thing what they did. Um, were, were they... I mean, in some ways, it's like, how do you categorize who they are? I mean, first of all, you categorize them as heroes, right? The people that, I mean, it's a Joseph Campbell definition of a hero, right? Those are doing doing something uh, for for others, right? You know, for much bigger than themselves. Right. Were they were they missionaries? Were they spies? Were they, you know, how did the, how does that, uh, how do you quantify that? You know, I think it's, um, as you said, in Joseph Campbell's The Heroic Journey, um, I think it was like Hercules. Hercules didn't have the strength to pick up a, a cow uh, or an ox overnight. It took time. And for them, they had to learn the trade of getting people out and rescuing people. But I think the urgency of the moment and the feeling that this was um, uh, kind of on their shoulders to help as many people compelled them to do heroic things that 
are hard to imagine given that they had no support from the US government uh, and no support from other institutions that might help them. They work very closely with the Quakers. Um, they work with other Unitarians. It was not a solo effort. It was a underground um, uh, resistance uh, of what happened later in, in, in France. It started in that time. Um, it's, it's when, you, when you piece together the documents of how they actually falsified uh, the records or how they um, um, you know, uh, camouflaged who they were rescuing, it, it gives me chills just thinking about how they put it all together. Well, um, you, you've done a film on this story. Yes. But did the genesis of that, did the genesis of, of who you are did that start with this conversation yes, with your grandmother back when you were 14 years old? Yes, it did. And really, she would say to me, so what are you going to do this great in your life? You know, that was kind of the way we started our conversations. <laughs> uh, so she rose, she raised the bar, you know. Um, and when I did the book, Raising the Bar, that featured you and got to know you, um, I could see that you were doing the same thing in your work as an athlete. Uh, that inspired me to do the work that I uh, did as an athlete and later in writing those, uh, the, that, that book. It, it, it kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of goodness. It's a dialectic of the good. Um, it's that, that when you help others, you, you produce a better identity for yourself you feel like you can contribute, then they contribute back to you. And before you know it, you're creating meaning in your life. You're creating connections of love. And I think my grandmother, my grandmother believed in me that I shouldn't just wallow in self-pity. Uh, but she also had no patience for pity, you know. And I think that inspired me in that 14-year-old conversation to do something great with my life and to continue to push myself to be the best version of myself that I could be. Well, and she wasn't just talking about it. Right. She and your grandfather went to Europe and, and saved people right. without any prior experience in saving people, in getting people over borders and away from, from you know, attacking forces and things like this. And, you know, so, so the creativity has to be part of it because in looking at what you've done, you've mentioned you've mentioned the the movie that you did with um, with your parents, right? Defying the not or with your uh, grandparents, defying the Nazis. Yep. You've mentioned raising the bar, which is a, a beautiful coffee table pictorial book of Paralympians. Right. But but you've done a wide variety of other things as well. And is it is it the creativity mm. to be able to tell a story because it's you know right now your big focus is is around employment for people with disabilities right but how but have you been preparing for that trying to figure out how to get there for yeah. a long time yeah and i think for me the employment piece of people with disabilities happens because my own employment has been so affected by my disabilities the kind of person I was able to become uh, is very much enabled by my disability. Um, I work very well, for example, in my home 
Uh, I think, for example, with COVID, we have an opportunity for people with disabilities to be able to be um, employable, they're loyal, uh, hardworking people with disabilities can contribute so much from their home office. Um, you know, so much about being disabled is access. How do I get from point A to point B? And the ADA helped to address that question of how do we create more access, but it didn't create an opportunity to hire people with disabilities. And, and if you look at the unemployment rate of people who are disabled, they are stunningly high. Uh, probably 80% of people with disabilities don't have jobs. Uh, and yet so many of us are capable to do things that if we're given a way to participate, we can make a tremendous contribution. Um, and everyone who, who struggles with being differently able, and that's the language I like to use, is that all of us are differently able in the sense that as we age, we, we have different capabilities and we were young. Um, uh, as we have challenges, we overcome those challenges. Um, and, and all humans, you know, struggle to make meaning uh, from our lives. And, and I think that's the Viktor Frankl part of my grandparents' story, which is that man's search for meaning, um, really that, that we find meaning in love, that we find meaning in loving others and loving the world more than we love in a sense ourselves, that we care about the world um, and we're willing to risk ourselves to help others. Well, yeah, and back to the Campbell thing, right? The idea of like success like happiness can't be pursued. It has to ensue as the unintended byproduct of one's, uh, of one's uh, pursuit of a cause greater than oneself, you know, and, you know, which is in the introduction of Frankel. Uh, but, but you talk about access. Access is a really interesting thing in that to a lot of people, that means ramps. Yep. That means elevators. We were talking about defying the Nazis. Access for you happened in an entirely different way. Right. Do you know what I'm talking about in asking this question? Yeah. How, how did you get that movie onto, onto PBS? Well, it was um, my friend, Ken Burns, who- um, That was, Ken Burns, yeah. That Ken Burns, yep. And Ken Burns had seen, uh, you know, I went to Hampshire College where he went to school. And uh, every year at a reunion, I would give him a copy of the film and he would say, oh, that's good work. And only a hundred other people were giving him DVDs at that same moment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he sat down and watched a version of the film with his um, family and was deeply moved by um, the story of Martha and Waitstall. I think he saw it as a, uniquely American story of what two uh, Unitarians from a, small, from a small town in America could do to help others. Um, and he said, I'll help you put this on PBS. And, and by the way, um, what do you think about Tom Hanks playing your grandfather? So I was, I was pretty excited by his partnership and I had the fun of learning from him and being mentored by him um, and seeing a larger than life person, Ken Burns, take on my family story and tell it in such a tender way and, and with, with their love letters and with their sense of what they had lost as a couple and um, missing my mother and missing my uncle and you know the, the ties of being in an isolated America, America that was not willing to face 
uh, what the Japanese were doing in, in the East and what the Nazis were doing in, in Europe. And then suddenly with, with the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor, we're willing to say, you know what, we have a bigger responsibility to safeguard the world from these scourges of, uh, of inhumane uh, governments. And um, my grandparents were the happiest people ever when they declared war, um, both uh, uh, Japan and Nazi Germany, because they felt there was a chance for ordinary people to, to, to live uh, democratic lives, uh, uh, you know? And so that, that American spirit, that kind of belief that we are part of a, a bigger world and that we play a role in, in the contribution of democracy around the world, um, that was their mission as well. And they were missionaries uh, in the spiritual sense. They were not trying to convert anyone to their tradition. They were trying to empower people. As my grandfather said, the liberation of the human spirit. We are here to liberate the human spirit. Um, and every person they rescued um, later discovered that most of the family members in their family had been killed. And so the, it's a solemn story of, you know, they didn't rescue that many people, but they did their best to help as many as they could. And it's amazing that you had this great story, this idea. I mean, a transformational, personally transformational story, because at 14 years old, this is the story that transformed you as an individual. Obviously, your grandparents transformed the lives of many, many people throughout the world. But then this connection from a small college in Western Massachusetts but then you have this connection to Ken Burns, who is this great filmmaker. And, and this is the accessibility that we're talking about, right? Just the, the idea of opening doors, one, to his genius of filmmaking and storytelling, but then also to, he's such a recognizable name. I mean, it, PBS isn't going to say, oh, well, it sounds like a great story. You know, they might say to you, Artemis, this sounds like a great story, but, you know, whereas with Ken Burns, they go, this sounds like a great story. We should do this. Which is, which is part of the accessibility, but it's also in looking at what you've done, have you consciously approached the visual side? Because one, it's about disability, but then looking at the Nazis, right. defying the Nazis, that's not necessarily about visibility or about disability, but at the same time, it is on some level, right? right. It's an undermined group of people telling that story, that idea of that, that, we, that we gravitate, gravitate toward people who, who are like us, who look like us, and we feel uncomfortable right. with those who, who look different. And as, as part of the, of the population of people with disabilities, that, that's exactly it. I mean, you look, we look different than other people. So have you, have you consciously tried to attack this in a visual I mean, manner? I mean, that's what we hope to do in our next series of, uh, of filmmakings to, to bring together the visual dynamism of people with disabilities and to show their power in the world. Um, my newest book with Larry Rothstein is called The Gift. Mm -hmm. And the notion of the gift is 
that that's when when someone realizes their gift of life, they can participate in a way where they are a gift, that their challenge is a gift, that their overcoming of 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 their differences are a gift. Um, you know, I think I think the most important thing to realize that all of us um, are born, we live a life, and then we pass away. You know, we all have um, a, a brief time to be here. And I think a lot about George Bernard Shaw and uh, his his poem about how we are how we are given this life to live, and we're not going to just just pass by and 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 enjoy ourselves. We're gonna give that torch to others. We're gonna mentor others. We're gonna give the opportunity for others. And, you know, I think with people with disabilities, we have, just like with the history of women, men have, have oppressed women in such ways where they had that domination over women, but they didn't have the full partnership of women. And now we have a world where women and men can equally participate in a way that was never imaginable um, hundreds of years ago. And now we have a world that invites women to participate, have men participate in a new kind of partnership, a new kind of recognition, but it is taken you know, a, a long time of, of oppression of women for men to realize that they are losing themselves in that oppression. And the same thing is true with people with disabilities. You know, the Romans, um, killed people with disabilities. The first people to be killed by the Nazis were, were people with disabilities. Um, the word handicap refers to begging for money, the hand and the cap. Cap and hand, you know? yeah. And so these are the kind of things we need to shift in terms of uh, inviting people with disabilities to be full participants in our society, not just be viewed as beggars, not just be viewed um, as as the tiny Tim, you know, or, or the Richard the Third, you know, the malevolent, um, e evil, angry um, character, but the character who gives um, their their heart and soul, whatever that might be, into the world and is welcomed for who they are. And um, and I, you know, I have to say, Chris, I am deeply inspired by your story. Of, of your, um, you, you know, how you pick yourself up literally by your, by your, uh, your wheels and your, your other kinds of straps and uh, reinvented yourself uh, from a, a great skier um, into a Paralympian and uh, both the summer and the winter Olympics. I mean, when I met you for the first time, I wanted to be like you. I wanted to be like Chris. Well, that's, it's, it's, that's what my search is, is to be like you, my friend. Well, it's mutual. And that's that that is the intended byproduct of this, right, is that we get to learn from other people. When you're when you're making these films, when yeah. you're when you're when you're working on these books, who do you consider your audience? How how who's the audience who can help shift mm. the paradigm? Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's what I love about what you do in terms of working with students. I really view my audience as that 14-year-old boy. Um, I really view that, that in that moment of becoming a young man, in that moment of expressing who we are, that we get to shift the paradigm of, 
of self-centeredness, of me, 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 into a paradigm of what can I do for others? And how by doing things for others, we grow our hearts. You know, I, I, I'm so moved by the story, for example, of Aretha Franklin, who was brought up in, in this church in Detroit by her father, who was, you know, very much of a taskmaster. And here, as she becomes this young singer, wants to work with Martin Luther King to, to give back. So her voice becomes an inspiration to those who have suffered from the, the lynchings and from the, the brutality of, 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 the, of the racist history in our country. You know, those are the stories where I think we need to, to, to use, to lift ourselves up because by giving to others, we give so much more to ourselves. And I think that's what the Paralympic movement is about. Um, you know, people don't understand that the Paralympics was really um, reflected by a wonderful doctor named Gutman, uh, an English doctor who- uh, German doctor, teaching, German doctor who German was doctor, in, right, in England, yeah. Who, who, who started to organize the first wheelchair basketball games between one hospital and another hospital because he realized that people would get better faster if they played the sport because all these people who were in the you know in the in the English army were were athletes and so he cleared out all the the rooms in the in the hospital wing and he gave everyone hockey sticks and he gave everyone ways of playing and before you knew it the recovery rates went up um so i you know i see the paralympic movement as kind of an improvement over the Olympic ideal of cooperation and world understanding, because every level of disability is reflected. And so when I think of my own attempts to make the US Paralympic team, my own attempts to qualify for the Paris 2024 Paralympic Games, it's not about me. I'm not focused on what Artemis can do. I'm focused on what my story can do to enable others to participate. And, and I love playing whether I win or lose. I love the experience of being vulnerable and to not know if I can beat this person. And then when I lose, I'm, you know, I'm humbled again. And when I win, I, you know, I fight for another day. <laughs> which, so. which is exactly it. And it's, it, it, it's interesting because just in doing some research on you, one of the other things that you had done was was about uh, three three times the violence about about violence against people with disabilities, and I couldn't help but kind of go by because because some of this is is the idea of people who who look different than us right. uh, about in some ways about the the bystander effect right right of, of the. That, that sometimes the more people who are there, the, the less likely someone is to step in. Right. And, and when we have a group that looks, that looks separate, how in your work do you make it personal? I mean, obviously you're saying your audience is the 14 year old boy that you were, and that's who you're appealing to, but how do you make it personal? Because once it's personal, then that's when the change can happen. Right. How do you go about making it personal? Well, I'm, I'm very vulnerable in my own life. And I try to maintain my vulnerability in my own life. So by, 
by by being vulnerable with the camera, by telling the story in a personal way, I hope to share that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to ask for help. Um, it's okay to not know the answer. It's okay to ask the question. Um, but more importantly, I'm celebrating curiosity. I'm celebrating what it means to be open-hearted. I'm also um, <coughs> celebrating really that you might get rejected, that it may not work. You know, um, uh, I, I think about working with Ken Burns and how long it took Ken to say yes to me. Um, it, took, it took just, not just a persistence of believing the story was important to tell, but to listen to him and to have him know that I would be a good uh, men mentee to his mentorship. Um, and I think that's a big part of it is that when you are put yourself out there, when you are willing to be declined and rejected, um, people, people are inspired by that courage. Um, and, and so that's what I've always tried to do. Um, Every day is difficult for me to walk. I don't walk very often anymore. I'm now uh, largely in a wheelchair, but I'm not afraid to ask for help to walk. And I try to walk as much as I can because I know that, you know, this could be my last step, you know? So I wanna make it my best step. Um, I've also become, by the way, a wheelchair dancer. Um, and uh, that is a lot of fun when you're able to, feel the fluidity of life uh, with sound and music in a wheelchair. And movement, uh, yeah. it, it's a beautiful way to, to move around on, on four wheels. So, you know, it's, it's for me, I guess in my heart of hearts, it's really about wanting to be a full participant and wanting to have a voice in, at the table and believing that I, that I have one that, that's unique. How much did your mother's work influence you? Tremendously. My mom is a world-class archeologist. She taught at Brown University for 30 years. Every summer I lived on an archeological dig with her and she taught each of her children to be a, a junior archeologist. We had our own area that we would um, uh, uncover. My sister actually worked with her for five years as an archeologist. Um, she was interested in the history of, of really our, our, our capacity for language. Um, how, did, how did we pass on knowledge? Um, she was you know, considered um, to be one of the great teachers of archeology span at Brown University. Um, I think over 50 people got their PhDs working with my, my mother. And the way she did it was every summer, she would organize her dig and invite her students to come with her and then provide um, uh, uh, her, their own area, their own trench to, to excavate. And then she would publish her work and she would publish the work of her students. And I saw her collaborative nature. Uh, she was very democratic in, in how she viewed anybody. But more importantly, she treated the, the local people who lived in these places to be her partner. And she worked with the cultural anthropologists and 
the, the historians of the community to empower them to, to run their own museums, to, to make sure all the artifacts were protected and not allowed to be stolen by, by thieves. And she prohibited my father, who was a great collector of antiquities, to stop buying antiquities because it encouraged thievery on the dig. So I saw that my mother was, like my grandmother, a larger than life kind of Indiana Jones of the, of the, of the dig. And her favorite talk, whenever she talked about her work, was called Lust in the Dust. And the first picture would be a photograph of my dad, who she loved so much. Artemis, I'm Artemis III, he was Artemis II. Um, and that was the love of her life. And that's where kind of beginning of everything was started with him and ended with him. So they, they had, you know, a 65 year old, year old marriage. Um, my dad died last year. And sadly, my mom is in her last moments as we speak. And I, I, send, I send love to her spirit. Most definitely, I do too. Yeah. What's an archaeological dig like? I mean, that I've never been on one. It sounds painstaking. It's painstaking. Well, it's organized into grids because you can only go down as far as you can carefully take out artifacts. And so you don't, you don't ever take a bulldozer in, for example, and dig out um, the, the dig. Most digs are created by earthquakes, where earthquakes would hit an area and the entire uh, contents of a dig would fall onto itself. So you have to painstakingly go through and extract what's on the surface and then go further down and go further down until you get to the original level of the dig. And many of these places that my mom was digging in had not been touched in 2000 years uh, from these earthquakes. Um, and I had the fun as a young man um, to see her uncover such beautiful treasures, uh, whether they're amphoras or jewelry or written um, uh, pneumatic um, tablets, um, all of which pointed towards certain evidence. And one of the things that my, my mother um, was able to achieve is that she was able to prove by finding artifacts from other places far away that trade had occurred uh, thousands of years before anyone knew. So she actually helped to rewrite the history of humanity by proving that certain artifacts were found in her dig from places that were far enough away to show that there was trade um, in the, really in the, the, what's called the Byzantine period, but uh, really the prehistorical period before written language occurred um, in about 4,000, 5,000 BC, that period of time. How does an archeological dig compare to making a movie? Well, it's very similar. You know, there's a lot of, uh, it's like making sausage. You gotta like go through the grinder and, uh, you know, making a movie like the movie uh, about my grandparents took 20 years. 
because you had to verify that everything you're saying in the film happened. And my mother always had to verify that what she was finding was in its integrity, uh, part of that historical record. Um, and like many places, if you, for example, dig in Rome, every time you dig in Rome, let's say you're building a new sewage system, you go down, you find another part of, of history there. You have to then preserve that dig to maintain that history. And it's very similar to making a film where each layer has to make sense with all the other layers. And by the time you're done, you want to have a new record of that history. You want to show what people did um, in that history. So that's really the similarity of the two. You didn't start out wanting to make films though, right? I mean, when you no. went to New Hampshire College, which is interesting because your mother taught at Brown, right. father was a chancellor at Brown, right? Right. You went to Hampshire, which in a lot of ways is more Brown than Brown, right? Right, that's right. Yeah, I, I was afraid in the, in the years that I was applying to college, all my friends weren't getting into Brown. So I decided not to even go to Brown or apply to Brown because I knew the only way I'd get in is because of my family's name. I wanted to go to my own school. Uh, so I started at Columbia College in New York um, and then met a young, um, a, a young woman at a jazz club on 114th street and she described this very strange place she was at school where there were no grades and students had to direct their own education and and the more she described it the more i said i, I like that the idea of that that kind of education and so got on a bus went up to amherst and went to this innovative school where the student was invited to design and, and, and direct their own learning. Uh, Project-based learning, where you defined a project that you wanted to learn uh, something, and then you went as a student to discover that. And um, my focus was psychology of social change. I was interested in how people change from being oppressed to being, um, being counted in, in society. And my focus was a gang on the Lower East Side. I studied how this gang um, uh, recruited members as a form of social inclusion. Um, and then I also studied how uh, this particular gang called Charas would use the gang as a vehicle of social change. Um, and, and they were very uh, powerful at bringing kids out of the the, the bad gangs through um, trying to help their fellow citizens. And, and, and one of the inspirations of this was called the Guardian Angels, um, which was a, a movement on the subway systems of New York, a uh, kind of a positive gang uh, to protect others. And so that was kind of the phenomena I was interested in, in these, in these gang ridden areas in these areas where drug use was was prevalent and where kids were enrolled into these gangs um how could you create a gang that actually contributed back to society and and protected people rather than steal from people and so that's that's what i studied during my years at hampshire college and then after i got um into into um 
my 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 work to do socially responsible investing, I realized that media was the way I really wanted to approach um, my next phase of life. And really that was when we founded No Limits Media in uh, 20 years ago. The idea being how do we change the image of people with disabilities? How do we change our perception of ourselves? And, and really that's when we started to work with this idea of of, of each of us being differently abled versus 20% of the society being disabled. Um, and we started to create new media um, ideas like Raising the Bar with the UN, um, The Gift and the book, The Gift. And now this new show that we're producing with Bloomberg TV called Inclusion at Work, which you are the host. So you know I, quite a bit about. I know a bit, a bit, a bit about this one. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm honored to be working with you. I think that's one of the fun things is, is that, you know, one plus one can equal three. And uh, I feel like working with you is about leveraging my experience, your experience, Larry Rothstein's experience into something where each of us can not just share a vision of empowerment for people with disabilities, or where we can continue to create stories like Tammy Duxworth, Senator Duxworth, you know, a first disabled African-American Senator um, in our Senate, you know, stories that really propel us, each of us to um, raise the bar. Exactly. Now, talking about employment opportunities, yeah. talking about trying to make the Paralympic team for 2024. Are these two things tied in, in any way? Well, they're tied in um, a continual desire to make an impact that's positive, um, to push myself to be the best person I can be, to compel me to make a difference in the lives of others. So all that is, in, integrated into who I am as a person and what I care about. I get the most joy, um, not when I have the best hit uh, in a ping pong table, but I get the best joy when I see others competing and fulfilling their, their joy. And I know that in my way, by me playing, I can inspire others to do the same. Um, but the, the employment piece to me is the next horizon if we can address that issue and create a new incentive for corporations to hire people who are differently abled so we can have more people at the table uh, with, with not just their contributions, but also economic power, um, then we have more decision-making you know, in terms of how people with disabilities are served by the larger community. And I am part of that being, I am being served as a person with disabilities and I'm also trying to advocate for others. So there are more of us able to go on a holiday and be able to get into our, our, um, our apartment with, with, you know, with a wheelchair rather than having to climb upstairs being carried by someone uh, to get up those stairs. To maintain your sense of honor and, and independence. Uh, so, so one of the things like with table tennis, 
your spinal muscular atrophy qualifies you to compete in the Paralympics. Right. But then you have another disability that we are all facing in that you're 60 years old trying to qualify for the games. We keep getting older and it gets a little bit more challenging to do what we wanted it to, what we wanted to do. With employment, what, what does that, what does that look like mm -hmm. if it's successful? Well, what it looks like is that, you know, we, we take the needle from 80% unemployment to 50% unemployment to a normal level, 10, 12% unemployment. That's where I want to get it to uh, in my lifetime is to create the, the opportunity for people. But more importantly, is to really get the companies to realize that they're missing out um, it's very similar to the women's movement, uh, that they're missing out on these women being leaders in their companies or in, in the larger society, that, that companies are missing out by not having people on every level of the spectrum uh, participate in making their companies more attractive. One of the companies I'm very excited to talk about is Intuit, where Intuit specifically hires people who are on a mental um, uh, capacity level uh, on the spectrum. And what they find uh, with different disabilities is that the more diverse they have in their workforce, the better their software becomes. Um, so, you know, I, I want more companies to be like Intuit where they hire people who, who have differences. Um, I, I really see, you know, the kind of this civil rights movement of the, the, the African-American challenge of, of having come from slavery in our country and what has occurred with Obama being our first black president and the inspiration that that gives to any African-American that they can become president, they can contribute in that level. I want that same experience for people who are disabled to feel that they have an equal voice. And in fact, they are part of the missing voice. They're part of the missing conversation because they're not invited to be part of the conversation today. And that's what I want to change. And But that's still an ongoing issue for, for women. I mean, women are making what 80% of what men are making. Right. Uh, you know, the African-American population is a, a, a large chunk of it is, is disenfranchised as well, right? I mean, it's it, these are these are things that, that sometimes we think we, you know, we have the I have a dream speech and, and we think, okay, well, that's all settled. And and on the disability side, we have Americans with Disabilities Act. And it's like, okay, well, you're 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 good. And it's it's a personal thing. It's a it's a uh it's it's the connection to you know, to, equality comes in a lot of different different ways, and maybe maybe instead of instead of stating my my opinion on it, what what does what does equality mean for you? It means a more a more juicy, happy, participatory world. It means it's more fun to get up in the morning and 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 play your role. Um, it means that, that, that we get the full benefit of all the intelligence that we have as we age. I mean, I, you, you mentioned my age and, you know, uh, I love being a 60 year old Paralympian. That, that thrills me that I could 
still qualify. And in fact, I have tricks up my sleeves that some of the younger players don't have because of my experience. Um, I, I think it's, it's about pushing the limits of life and not letting life tell us we can't do this, we can't do that. It's about saying, no, we, we are here to fully participate in whatever way we can. I, I think a lot of Christopher Reeves, who I got to know before he passed, um, you know, he took his, 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 um, his paralysis and turned it into um, a, a foundation where he would give back to others um, and how it made him a better person and how as a person, he, uh, it, 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 he became aware of other people in a way that as Superman, um, he could never have done. Um, and I think part of it is being more human. I think for me, it's about being my full human being um, and being at peace with myself. Yeah, which, which enca encapsulates a lot of stuff, right? I mean, it is, it is, it is safety. It's, 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 it's access to food. It's, it's, it's the hope that you can realize your dreams and also that you can, that you have the ability to reach the support, whether financial, emotional, strategic, et cetera, that you need in order to be successful. This is, this is sort of the, 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 the luck and, uh, uh, fortuitousness of of going having gone to school with Ken Burns, right? Is that that it's that it's like okay, we can make this. We have a great thing, and we can and we can get there. A lot of us have been in a really lucky position, and we've had to and and luck. I mean, this is we do we do quotes every every week, and one of our quotes was that uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm. Uh, you know, and and. And, and I think that, that there is something to be said for that, but some of us have a few more opportunities exactly. than, than, than other people do. And I mean, it's interesting just given your sort of academic up upbringing, because your academic upbringing was a lot with your parents as well. I mean, being on archaeological digs as a, as a little kid, you saw things in a little bit different, different way, different societies in, in, a, in a tangible tactile kind of way you're talking about fundamental fundamental change you know fundamental societal change how how does I and mean, we have about five minutes so i don't know how your answer can work in this in this short period of time how, how do we create that fundamental kind of change does it start with the individual does it start with the group does it do we have to leverage those who have the biggest voice yeah, I think it's all those. Um, I think it takes change at every level. I think um, we need to pass um, a stronger enforcement of the ADA. We need to create more um, incentives for, for companies to hire people with disabilities. We need to um, look at what are the best performing companies uh, and see their disability index in a sense. Um, we're, we're excited to promote um, a new index called Disability In that looks at companies that hire people with disabilities and how well they perform in the marketplace. 
This is something that Ted Kennedy Jr. is, is promoting. Um, so I think it happens at all levels. It happens um, at a political level, it happens at the economic level, and it happens at the individual level. And all of us have to play our role. All of us have to, you know, be part of, you know, pulling and pushing and creating opportunity. And by creating opportunities for ourselves, we give opportunities to others. And it's this unity happens through diversity. Unity happens through each voice being authentic and each voice having meaning. And to see that you have a voice that you can speak up for your vision allows other people to do the same. And, and I think ultimately we have to learn to listen to each other. We need to learn to be vulnerable with each other. We need to be able to ask for help. Um, and we also need to be able to give help when people come to us. And I think it's that fluidity of life that happens in any human uh, intimacy, in any human life where we get to uh, make a difference in the, in the lives of others, we make a live, difference in our lives and vice versa. Yeah, and how do, we, how do we reconcile? This is always one of the big questions for me, right? Because you've been talking about diversity and this is back to like Darwin and maybe even before, right? That, we're, that, we're, that the diversity makes us more, more likely to, to survive and actually stronger. And, and, and so that makes sense, right? That makes sense on an intellectual level. But how do we reconcile this idea of, of diversity then with we feel most comfortable around those people who look like us and have had the same kind of background that we have? Right. Well, I think it's realizing that when you intermarry into one community and you are only wanting to be with people that look exactly like you, that it's not good for our, our children. Uh, that when we, you know, if you look at a, a forest, the most diverse forest is the healthiest one. Um, and that when we marry outside of our tribe, when we attract other people into our lives, um, we become stronger by that. And I think it's, it is a Darwinian concept at, at its core uh, is that, you know, we, that all beings that are alive have evolved over millions and millions of years. We didn't just show up here yesterday and that our diversity is what our strength is rather than our unity or our similarity is our strength. Um, and I think you're seeing that in the most productive places in the world, which are, you know, US companies, um, worldwide companies, the capitalist system, the reason it works is that it's not just that it fosters competition, it's that it creates opportunity for people to participate in a corporate in context that lets us each become a player in that world and to bring our best to that, to that, to that opportunity. And I just believe that we need to create a new kind of capitalism called social capitalism, where it's not just the bottom line making as much money as we can, but what we do to the benefit of society in our capitalism. How do we build homes that are sustainable, that are, are low carbon footprint? How do we create jobs for people who are different from us so we get the diversity of opinions? 
Um, that's where I think we we grow as a society. So so let me see if I can if I can encapsulate that. So so it really is best practices and leading to a competitive advantage as right. a result of of diversity. So we've got to be able to 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 see the to see the success right. of these companies and and recognize that we're missing out as a result is you know is often a motivator for for all of us and 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 looking at it on on a bigger level i mean you're talking about sort of the the social capital and i think it was i think it was aristotle who said you know what i do for my community is what i do for myself right and and it's sort of the the sixth level of enlightenment and so you're talking about that sixth level of enlightenment that that uh, that, that that's effectively what we're what we're trying to get to. It might be an, it might be an elusive uh, uh, step of the enlightenment, but it, but it is the objective for us. So right, yeah. Well, I think life is humbling, and when we learn from our mistakes, and when we understand that we're just one opinion of many, we learn from others, and. Um, that's the society I like being part of. And I think it's more joyful to have, have a, a big world that, that is different and where things are, are new and curious and you can explore who you can be in different forms of your life. Artemis, thank you very much. This has been oh. a complete pleasure and uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be part of One Revolution and I am honored to have this conversation with you and I look forward to many more opportunities to work with you, Chris, and, uh, and be part of your team. Uh, it, it's completely mutual. The mutual hope is, is to do exactly that and keep up, keep up the great work, keep going. And thank you. And I'll look forward to seeing you next time to all of you. Thank you for listening per usual. If you didn't get a chance to hear the whole conversation, this will be archived on the one revolution page on Facebook. You can go there. You can see this conversation. You can see previous conversations as well. We will edit it and it will be uh, uh, published as a regular podcast on, you know, Apple and Spotify and YouTube, all the places where you get your podcasts. The greatest gift you can give us is to like us, to follow us, to tell your friends that this is a great thing and they shouldn't miss it. So thank you all so much. Artemis, again, thank you. And we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Forward.